Uh, we have already prayed for the message, and I pray that God will use it in your heart. Uh, why don't you look with me, though, to Isaiah 42? Isaiah 42. Um, and the title is, Who is the Servant of Yahweh? Who is the Servant of Yahweh, Part 1? Um, we are going to work our way through Isaiah 42 as we continue this series in Isaiah 40 through 48. What I want to do is read this entire um, chapter to you so you can get a sense of what is happening here. So just follow along with me. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened, uh, disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to uphold, to open blind eyes, and to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am Yahweh, this is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all those who dwell on them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices, the, the settlements where Kadar inhabits, and the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them sing for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to Yahweh and declare his praise in the coastlands. Yahweh will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. I have kept silent for a long time. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now, like a woman in labor, I will groan. I will both gasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and wither all their vegetation. I will make the rivers into coastlands and dry up the ponds. I will lead the blind by a way they do not know, and paths they do not know. I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them, and rugged places into plains. These are the things I will do. I will not leave them undone. They will be turned back and be utterly put to shame, who trust in idols, who say to graven images, you are our gods. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind that you may see who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger whom I send. Who is blind as he, is he that is at peace with me 
are so blind as a servant of Yahweh. You have seen many things, but you do not observe them. Your ears are open, but none hears. Yahweh was pleased for his righteousness sake to make the law great and glorious. But this is a people plundered and despoiled. All of them are trapped in caves or are hidden away in prisons. They have become a prey with none to deliver them and a spoil with none to say, give them back. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will give heed and listen hereafter? Who gave Jacob up for spoil and Israel for plunders? Was it not Yahweh against whom we have sinned? And in whose ways they were not willing to walk? And in whose law did they not obey? So he poured out on them the heat of his anger and the fierceness of battle. And it set him aflame all around. Yet he did not recognize it and it burned him, but he paid no attention. Oh, there's some great truths in there, aren't there? And let me give you an overview of what is happening, you know, in this chapter. We're going to notice verses 1 to 4, and it focuses on the servant, and we need to determine, well, who is this servant? We need to ask, what is this servant like, and what is the mission of the servant? And then he elaborates even further. He goes back to his thought, which has come up time and time again, that Yahweh is the absolute creator of all things. Why would you trust idols who are created by the hand of God or the hand of man? Then he says, I've called you this servant in righteousness, and I'm going to uphold you and watch over you. I'm going to appoint you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations. You're going to open blind eyes, and you're going to bring out prisoners because they are surely in need. And then in verse 10, Isaiah just opens up in praise. Really in verses 10 to 11, he, he shouts and he says, sing to the Lord a new song from the ends of the earth. This is your, in one sense, obligation that you would recognize that God is the ultimate savior, recognize him for who he is. And then he turns a corner and he says in verse 14, I've kept silent for a long time. I, I kept still and restrained myself. And now I'm like a woman in, in labor. I'm going to give birth to this child. He's saying, I'm going to give birth to anger and to wrath. But now who is going to be the recipient of this, of this anger and wrath? Notice what he says. Verse 18, we find out. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Now the word servant comes up again. Because we've seen servant before. Israel is a servant. Uh, we've recognized that Cyrus would be a servant because he would deliver the people of God. And now we see this other servant really in verses uh, 1 to 4 and then 5 to 9. And now another servant comes up here. But obviously this servant is different than the first because the first is going to establish justice and the first is going to do it in faithfulness and the first is delighted by God and the first has the spirit of God upon him. But this servant, he says, you're deaf and you're blind and you don't see and you're disobedient. So obviously this servant is Israel and unrepentant Judah. But God is saying, ultimately, I will bring about judgment, not only on Judah, but anyone else that would trust idols, because it is utterly ridiculous. So the servant, um, and this is the question we have to ask, the servant 
of Yahweh is introduced. And, but is he the Christ? What is he like? And what is his mission? You know, in this particular context, there is a need. There is a contextual context. And what is the need? There's a need for the nations because the nations are following these false gods. And what is the solution? What is the solution for Judah? How will they be delivered? Will they be delivered by false gods? Absolutely not. What is the answer for the nations? How can they gain spiritual health? Will it be through the gods that they create with their hands? Absolutely not. It must be someone else. But there's also a contemporary need, and it really is the same. The contextual need was the nations and their false gods, and there's a contemporary need, and it's the same thing, really. It's the nations and their false gods, because today uh, nothing has really changed uh, people still follow false gods. We invent religions. And all you need to do is to go to the internet right now. And if you were just to type in religion, would only Christianity come up? <laughs> By no means. You would have millions and millions of hits. Uh, I was just studying recently, not studying, it was just a bit of reading in Buddhism and talking about Buddhism in the sense of um, finding nirvana and that one can come back again and to another life and reincarnation. And it may not be a life of humanity. You may come back in even in animal form. And as you keep going through this cycle, eventually what you do, you will free yourself of self and you can be one with the universe and all things that are peaceful around you. Do we trust that? Absolutely not. That's obvious. But you say that's obvious that one wouldn't trust it, but as I remember correctly, there are 550 million people on this planet that trust Buddhism. Hmm. So here, the need is really the same. There must be a source of spiritual help, but it must come from an unpolluted source. Uh, these sources here were all polluted because they were all nothing. As a matter of fact, the scripture says that they were greater than nothing. They were, they were meaningless. They were actually chaotic is what the scripture is saying about them. And so now we're introduced with hope, and that hope is in a person, and that person is the servant. Now, this is the first of the servant songs. There are four of them. So we find here in Isaiah 42, but we'll find another. Let's just briefly look at it, if you will, Isaiah 49 is another of the servant songs, if you will. Isaiah 49, we see another servant song, and that is really in verses 1 to 13. It says, listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, and the shadow of my hand he has concealed me, and he also made me... Like a select arrow, he has hid me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But what happened, and it goes on even into verse 13, what happened? Israel didn't fulfill its role as the servant, and now there must be that perfect servant, and that servant would be the Lord Jesus Christ. You see it also in chapter 50. Chapter 50 of Isaiah is the second or the third of the servant songs. Beginning in verse 4, it says, Yahweh God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary with the word. He awakens, 
me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a, as a disciple. Yahweh God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient. Now notice this, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for Yahweh God helps me. And it goes on through verse 11 telling us about this servant. And notice this servant is different than the one we saw in the latter part of 42. He was disobedient. He wasn't listening. He wasn't hearing this servant will. And of course, the language here that this servant did not turn back, he did not turn back because in um, Luke 7:51 it says of Jesus Christ, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. The word is quite strong. The word for determined here, uh, to be resolute, is what it's saying. It's actually a word that was used, it'd be Luke 16, I think, Luke 16, 26. Um, you remember uh, the rich man in Lazarus, and it says, well, you cannot come one to the other side because there's a chasm that is fixed. Nothing can change it. And so Jesus Christ was fixed to go to Jerusalem, and he would not refuse the suffering that the father had for him. This is the servant. And of course, um, uh, the most famous of the servant songs, look with me um, just so briefly at Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, the latter verse, verse, uh, well, 13, starting in 13. And what does it say? Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be what? High and lifted up and greatly exalted. And I love verse 14. If you were to go to my office, you'll see it um, actually in my office written out, and it's actually um, written in Hebrew, and it's a wonderful verse that impacted my life many years ago when I was in seminary, and and uh, I was in my THM, and I was we and it was a seminar on soteriology, and I addressed the issue of the suffering servant, and I went through it and translated it, and it has such a great impact on my life. I, even today, it just seems like yesterday. Because he says in verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so your appearance is marred more than the sons of man. And your countenance than men. And what does it say? And what's beautiful about this language here when it says, so your appearance is marred more than man, the language is saying that you are far from man. You are brutalized. This is the servant. And so now introduced here is the servant of Yahweh. He is the only solution for the nations and their vain idols. He is the only solution for Judah and their righteous exile. And I say righteous exile because they rebelled against the Lord and the Lord righteously sent them off into exile. But yet if they would turn to him, they would be restored. And eventually they will because that's what Isaiah 40 and what we're studying has been saying. Comfort, oh, comfort my people. You will be comforted. I will fulfill my word to bring you back again. And see, all of these lessons that we're going through, they should be undergirding in our souls and our minds that our God is trustworthy, is he not? You can say this every week. If we were to every week come in here and say, I have a lesson about God and his trustworthiness, you should never get tired of that. Because then you walk away from here and there's always opportunities for you to say, God, I need to trust you. 
God, the circumstances in life are quite demanding. How do I trust you? So there are two major parts that we're going to consider um, in this text. And number one is this. Understand the support and mission of the servant. Understand the support and mission of the servant. And I want us just to walk through it in the language. It really is, in one sense, it gives it to us, if you will, how Isaiah has written this, that we can understand God's word. Word, it is quite beautiful. So notice what he says in Isaiah 42. Isaiah, go back to Isaiah 42. And what does he say here? Behold, so my servant. Now this idea, the servant of the Lord, it was referred to Moses like 29 times that he was the servant of the Lord. It was referred to twice that Joshua was the servant of the Lord. However, different when it says here, my servant. The, the pronouncement made by God saying, you are my servant of Israel. 14 times you'll see that Israel is referred to as my servant. And we'll find it seven times if you were to just open Isaiah. And if you were to read through Isaiah 40 to 55, you would see seven times that God refers to Israel as my servant. It's also referred to Moses six times. What God says of Moses six times, you are my servant. One example would be in Numbers 12 and 6. It's used of David 21 times. God says David is my servant. It's also used of the prophets. The prophets referred to as my servant nine times. One example would be in 2 Kings 9 and 7, the prophets referred to as my servant. And you remember Job. Um, how does Job open up? Actually, it's in Job 1.8 because throughout Job, I think it's seven times, Job is referred to as my servant because what does God say? Have you considered what? My servant Job. My servant. And interesting enough, if you even consider in uh, Jeremiah 27 and 6, Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as my servant. My servant. See, there is an anticipation that this ultimate servant would come. Yes, um, Israel, a servant of God, but not the servant because they failed. Moses, a servant of God, surely the great prophet. And we will see him even in the future. And there he, <laughs> I'll stop right there. Uh, I wanted to start talking about some eschatology, but I'll leave it alone. Uh, Moses, but yet Moses failed, did he not? He didn't go into the what? promised land. David was indeed a servant of God. And, and we know how David woefully failed, although he was a man that was after God's own heart. The prophets often, they were speaking for the Lord, but not every prophet was a perfect prophet. And Job, even at the end of the episode in his life, Job has to make an apology, does he not? He says, I spoke things that I should not have spoken. Let me be silent, a servant, but not perfect. And Nebuchadnezzar, God calls him his servant because God is a sovereign God that uses even pagan kings for his purposes. But there's but one ultimate servant. And that ultimate servant is anticipated, even if you were to consider um, in Isaiah 11, there is predictive prophet that says this servant is going to come. Let's just look at it briefly. Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11. And it says, then a shoot shall spring up from the stem or the root of Jesse, from the branch 
and a branch from its roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And he will delight in the fear of Yahweh, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked." And this goes on through verse 9, gives us a picture of a servant that would be anticipated from the root of Jesse. And of course, the root of Jesse is David, and from David is the Christ. But it says something very interesting about this servant, though. How do we understand him better? Let me give you several points under this heading. Number one is this. He stands in contrast to the idols. This servant stands in contrast to the idols. Go back with me to Isaiah 42, and what does it say here? Isaiah 42, what does it say? Behold, just that word. Why is that important? That's important because if you were to go back to Isaiah 15, I'm sorry, Isaiah 40, 15, it says, Behold, the nations are just a drop in the bucket. And then the word comes up again, and Isaiah 41, 29, just turn back there briefly. Uh, well, let's put it in a bit more context. Notice what it says, 27. It says, formerly I said to Zion, behold, here they are. And to Jerusalem, I will give a messenger of good news. But when I look, there is none. And there is no counselor among them. Who, if I ask, can give an answer? And what he's saying here... Or which of these false gods can give an answer? Which of them can predict the future? None of them can. And then notice verse 29. There is our word, behold, behold, all of them are what? What does it say? False. Of course they can't give an answer. Because they don't know the future. Of course they don't know that Cyrus is going to deliver the people. Because they're false gods. And it says their works are worthless their molten images are wind and emptiness. So now the transition is this. Those words are important. Behold, the nations are dropping the bucket. Behold, the idols are worthless. But then he says, behold, my servant. You could translate it. See, look, the nations are nothing. See, look, the idols are nothing. See and look, my servant is the answer. And this is what he's doing. Behold. So he stands in contrast to the idols. He is the solution. He is not an idol. He is the living God himself. He is the one who, just like it says throughout all these scriptures that we've looked at already, he is the one who created all things. He is the one in this very moment that's upholding even the world, the universe, by the word of his power. Here's something else we should understand about this servant. He receives support from Yahweh. He receives support from Yahweh. If we look at the text, it says, my servant whom I uphold. And, and the word here is a very strong word. It, um, it means to perhaps even to, to, grab, to grip fastly is what it's saying. It's the idea that you're holding on to. It's an unyielding relationship is what he's communicating here. And I thought it interesting, even as we sang earlier, what was one of the songs that we sang? I won't tell you what it was. Exactly. He will do what? He will hold me what? 
he will hold me fast. And I thought the Lord worked that out, that we would sing that song, and this is what is being communicated here. He is going to uphold the servant. He will hold to him fast. And we see that throughout the life of Jesus Christ, the Father constantly supporting the Son through his ministry. So not only does he uphold the Son, then he upholds all those who are in the Son. Amen? So here is something else about this servant that we can understand, his mission and his support. He is royally commissioned by Yahweh. He's royally commissioned by Yahweh. Notice that he is chosen. Now, why do I say royally commissioned? Why is that necessary? Because he did not volunteer, if you will. He is commissioned. He's called. And this idea to be chosen is a language that one might use to choose a king. And at times, you see, it, it's God uh, are the people that chose a king. God chose David as a king. He would set him apart as his, as his, his anointed. And so here... God is saying, I have chosen this servant as my royal king. He will represent me and my causes and the world, just as a king today might be chosen to represent a nation. Um, and it's, you might say, um, it's desires in the world. So Christ is chosen by the God to fulfill the cause of God in the world. So he's chosen by God. What else do we learn about him? He's empowered by Yahweh. He's empowered by Yahweh because it's right there. I have put my spirit upon him. Um, at Christ's baptism, what, what happens? And the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descends on Jesus Christ and words are pronounced. We, see, we hear a voice from heaven. This is my son in whom I'm what? Well pleased. And the Holy Spirit is upon Jesus Christ. He is powered, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do his ministry. And we would do well, pause for a moment and think about this, just an application for your life. You would do well, as the scripture tells us, even in Ephesians 5, that you'd be walking in the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. Here's Jesus Christ was dependent on the Spirit of God and he would, because the Spirit of God is upon him, he would be successful. We see this language, the Spirit of God being upon someone throughout the Old Testament. Often it was the Spirit of God came upon him, or the Spirit of God came upon the prophet, and the Spirit of God came upon a judge. It was this sense of, one would call it a, a theocratic anointing. And a theocratic anointing means simply that God and someone that is fulfilling his purposes, he anoints them, he, he empowers them to fulfill it. But that theocratic anointing could, with some, come and go. They could lose it. And you remember the story of Samson and what happened with Samson and all of his great might. Um, and what happened at the end of his life? Um, in one sense, God had departed him. But what happened again? The Lord, again, came upon him and he killed more Philistines in his death than he did in his life. So it had departed and it's back again. Whereas with us and with Christ, it is upon him and it is in us never to leave us. What else do we learn about him? Consider this. He will bring justice for Yahweh. He will bring justice for Yahweh. Notice what the text says. He will bring forth justice to the nations. But we see it repeated. 
Because notice again in verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. And then in verse 4, until he has established justice in the earth. We hear a great deal today about justice, do we not? And what is justice? Well, in its immediate context here, the word for justice is, it is a nuanced word. But remember the context of Isaiah beginning in verse 40, particularly what we've seen in 41, there's a court case that's going on. And what is the court case? God is calling the witnesses. And remember, God is calling the witnesses. He says, okay, why don't you bring all of your idols and let them tell us about the future? Bring your gods and let them demonstrate if they have created the heavens and the earth. Bring your gods and let them demonstrate whether or not they know the future. What is going to happen? And then there's ultimate silence because they have nothing to say. And this is why he says in verse 29 that they're empty and they're worthless. It's like they take the stand and they say nothing. They're mute. Whereas what it's saying here of God, he is going to bring forth justice. He is the one. He is in one sense now the servant is taking the stand and it's saying he will be the true representative. He will bring about justice in the earth. He is ultimately going to make a declaration that these idols are worthless. It is only Yahweh. He is going to right all the wrongs in the earth. We would surely wish that it were different. I mean, it's sad when you hear some of the stories that we've heard recently. I even heard a story. Uh, it was in Charleston. Some fellow was, uh, some people were outside and he's, he's, kind of speeding back and forth. And he says, why don't you slow down a little bit? There are children playing out here. And he came back with um, now the, the infamous AR-15. It shouldn't really be that big of a deal. But anyway, um, he came back and he started to shoot at people. And there were many people there. And actually a woman that had her license to carry ended it. Ended it by taking his life. Now you won't ever, and this is a, semi-social, spiritual, political statement right now, but I'll make it anyway. <laughs> it's sort of, it's all merged together <laughs> because these things are spiritual. Uh, you would never hear that story. Where is that story? That a woman that's armed saved the lives of other people. You're not going to hear that story. But you would wish that you don't even have to have those stories, right? When are all things going to be made right? When are evil people going to pay the price? I mean, the uh, attorney for Los Angeles, uh, someone barrels over a mom and an eight-month-old child. Thank God they both survived. And the attorney decides, well, let's give him five months sort of home probation. Are you kidding me? When is that going to be made right? When will there be justice? When will people not be judged by uh, their socioeconomic status? When will they not be judged based because they know someone or they have a name? When will you not hear headlines when it says, with well, such and such, whether it be a movie star, an athlete, or a politician, they were on drugs, or they beat their wife, or they did this, and they apologized, and they walked away from it? Whereas the person that's the nobody does the same thing, and now they're incarcerated. When is that going to change? 
Not until the servant makes all things right. And that's why I said there's a contextual need, the nations and their idols. There's a contemporary need, the nations and their idols, because we still, our idols are just called by different names. Yeah, it may not be Marduk, but it's something else. It may not be Ra, but it's something else. It may not be an Asherah, but it's just something else. And only this servant will make all things right. And notice that it's repeated three times. Let's go back to it again, and I just remind you of it. Notice that it's repeated three times. So my spirit is upon him. Well, the spirit is upon him for a purpose. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The nations don't have it now. They didn't have it then. There are other people throughout history that thought that they were bringing justice. Cyrus thought he was bringing justice. He did not. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was bringing justice. He did not. Alexander the Great thought he was bringing justice, and he did not. And then he says in verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Now, that's important. Some translations may say this. In truth, he will bring forth justice. Why faithfully? Because the Christ, Jesus Christ, faithfully served the Father, did he not? With faithfulness. And then again, he says, he is going to continue his mission until he has established justice. It is going to be firmly established under his reign. What else can we learn about um, this servant? And it is this. And if you would note, I don't, uh, yeah, note Psalm 9611. Look at Psalm 98, 7 through 9. Uh, because those are examples of, of a king that is royal and he's establishing justice and this is this king who will do it. Um, <clears throat> the extent of his justice, I want you to see this though, because it says, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. So the extent of his justice is global. Now, remember, the coastlands, that's just another way of saying because the coastlands were uh, the lands that were far from the main body. And so the coastlands represented something that was global. Or it represented the earth and all that it is. Because you think about today, um, I forget how many islands are a part of, of Indonesia. Um, but there is a, the main island itself, but many thousands of surrounding islands. And we think about the million islands that are in the world today. That represents sort of those far places from us. And he's saying, even in the coastlands, as far as you can see, perhaps in the distance, they will wait for his justice. It's a global justice that's coming. See, Christ is the answer to the question of Malachi. So what do you mean? Turn with me to Malachi, and we'll find out. Look at Malachi chapter 2. Malachi 2, and then in verse 16. I'm sorry, 17. And it says, You have wearied Yahweh with your words, yet you say, How have we wearied him? And that you say, But in the sight of Yahweh, and he who delights in them, are where is the God of justice? Why is that an important question? Why did I bring that up? Because I'm saying that this servant is the answer to the question posed here by Malachi because the people of God, the people of God, that is, uh, they have words that really mean nothing. 
the people of God here, they do evil and they call it good in the sight of God. And they say, where is the God of justice? Who is the one that's going to judge? Where is he? Um, he's here. And he will judge. People today have the same attitude, do they not? They say, where is God? They don't think they're, they're accountable. And here's the sad thing about it. A person will, may go through their life living life their way. As I saw a little T-shirt um, when I was at mentioned this to you before, when I was in Coles dropping off an Amazon return, I saw this section about, you know, Pride Month and all these little clothes of girls. And, and one of the T-shirts says, you do you. See, that's an idol, is it not? And what is that idol? I am the most important person there is. And people today live that way. And they'll live that way, but there'll come a point when they cross into eternity, they will have to give an account. Because not everyone will give an account in this life. It's like the thought of Psalm 73. And remember Asap, he's struggling. He says, man, I look around and... um, the wicked are fat and they're enjoying life and I'm struggling and I became even embittered in my heart until I realized their end. Yeah. Now, let's make some applications here. Um, that is of these texts to Christ before we go to our next major point. Um, go with me to Matthew. Matthew 8. Matthew 8, and it says here, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took on our infirmities, and he did what? He carried away our diseases. And then if you were to look with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, verse 18. And what does it say there? Um, let's put it in context. Um, let's start back here in verse 13. It says, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand and he stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Now hold that thought because I'm going to come to that later on in Psalm 42. And I just want to tell you right now, look how Christ is caring for the needy. Just hold that thought. It says, but Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Now, you see here, I had mentioned to you earlier that the extent of the servant's justice or his ministry is global. And we see here that is in fact global because now he is going to proclaim this ministry to even the Gentiles. What was part of the problem with Judah and Israel? They wanted the message for themselves. They had no global perspective, but the servant does. And then he says, verse 19, he will not call nor cry out, nor will he... Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. 
You see other applications of what we're talking about in Luke 22, 37. Um, let's just briefly go there. Look with me at Luke. And what does it say? For I tell you that <clears throat> which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. Referring to the other, other servant's song, he would be that suffering servant. So, behold, he's going to be supported. He's chosen. The Spirit of God is on him. He's going to bring about justice. Here's a second major consideration for us. Understand the character of the servant. Look, look at his character. Go back to Isaiah 42. So verses 2 to 4, we look at his character. And number one, he is not self-serving. He is not self-serving. Um, we saw that communicated in Matthew's account. He's not going to crowd. He's not going to make his voice heard. In verse 2, it says, he will not crowd or raise his voice or make his voice heard in the street. Now, pause for a moment. You say to yourself, hold on a second. Every gospel that I read, Jesus Christ did what? What did he do? He went out and preached, and he told people, let him hear, and repent. The kingdom of God is at hand, and he made declarations. So what is this saying? He's not going to crowd or raise his voice or, or make his voice heard in the street. Understanding the word means that he is not going to force this upon people. He is going to speak truth, but it won't be forced upon them. And as well, he is not self-serving because Christ, we see consistently in his ministry, he was always bringing people to the glory of God. Think about the glory of God and who God is. It is my Father. It is my Father. It is my Father. So he's not self-serving. But notice what else we see in his character. Verse 3, he will not overpower the weak. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. So bruised reed, and earlier in Isaiah 36, it talks about Egypt is like a broken reed. It means it's, it's fragile is what it's communicating. And it says there are going to be people that he will interface with. They will be weak in life, and I'm going to restore them. Whereas other leaders, they would squash them. They would put their foot on their neck. Not this servant, not at all. And notice what it says, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Or it could be a smoldering wick. Some translations say a faintly burning wick. And think about it. We don't think about a wick much, right? Uh, uh, but perhaps, well, even if you went camping, you're going to probably have something that's solar powered. Uh, that's just where we are today. But think, we have to go back a little bit. And if you did have a candle from time to time, you might put out a candle. Maybe it's just for atmosphere. I'm not sure. Um, and as you see it coming to an end, you can say, enough of it. It's done. And he's saying, there are going to be people like that. They're like a smoldering wick. It, it's, it's flickering a little bit. And either you can put it back into the oil so more can come up, or you can just say, I'm discarded. It's not worth it. He said, the servant will not be that way. There are going to be people and they're flickering in life. 
This is the image that is being communicated here. Either you can say, you really don't give up enough light, you're really not worth it, so we're discarded. Because we do that with things, do we not? We say, it's not worth it anymore. Let's get rid of it. Um, Either you throw it away or sometimes you say to yourself, well, maybe someone, you give it away to some, I just came back from this trip to Minneapolis-St. Paul, and I've got to go, I've I mentioned it to Joanne. I said, I've got to get another suitcase. This thing is terrible. Um, I mean, I was literally dragging it through the airport. The wheels weren't working at all. I'm thinking, and the the handle was shaking on it. I just thought I could go, you know, the old-fashioned way where you used to carry your luggage, right? That just shows us where we are in society, right? (laughs) I've got to get another piece of luggage. You know, the the wheels aren't working properly. But I'm going to get rid of it. It's not serving its purpose anymore. I could repair it. I looked at it and I thought, I could probably order it, take that apart. I think I can do it, put new wheels on it. (laughs) No, I don't think so. Let's get rid of it. Yeah, (laughs) I'd make a decent salary. I could get another piece of luggage, right? But he says, they're going to be people. And this is what he's talking about, individuals, and they're flickering in life. And if it's a wick that's flickering, you may say, it's not giving enough light, get rid of it. He says, no, the servant will do what? He's the one that's going to breathe on them. He's the one that's going to give them life. And now they can now be lights in the world. Amen? What a transformation. This servant is so different. So very different. Other leaders squash them. They have no purpose. Other leaders bruise them. They cannot help us. So he won't overpower the weak. Notice something else about this servant. He will not be overpowered by opposition. This is beautiful. This is why at times I love you get into sometimes the languages in it and things come out. This is so beautiful. Notice what he's saying here. Now, you, why did I use similar language? Because notice what he says in verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He's not going to blow it out. Then it says in verse 4, he will not be disheartened or crushed. Wait a minute. It's the same words that he just used. And what he's saying here, I think the LSB captures it well, because they say in verse 3, the crushed reed and the faintly burning. And then they say, he will not faint or be crushed. And he just changes the orders of the words. So what he's saying here, Christ is not going to be extinguished. He's not going to be blown out. Christ is not going to be bruised in the sense that discarded. Why? Because he's determined to do God's will. Now pause for a moment. He said, hold on. Isaiah 52 and 53, it says that he was bruised, that he was crushed. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's different. What he's saying here, this is why the NASB, and I do like this in the NASB, says he won't be disheartened. He's not going to give up. He's going to continue in the ministry. He's going to receive opposition, just like we saw in the account in Matthew, uh, the Pharisees, the opposition from the Pharisees, the opposition from the Sadducees. But he is going to continue in his father's mission until justice is established. And he will, when he comes again, have opposition, but he will continue then until justice is established on the earth. There will be a battle and Christ will win. So he is not going to be crushed, and he's not going to be blown out until he has finished his mission. 
I have a final thought for you, and it is this. This is more than just predictive prophecy, but an opportunity for trust and imitation. Because all of these messages are about trust. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Time and time again, trust the Lord. This is what he is saying to Judah. This is what he's saying to the nations. And you say, how many times can we hear it? As many times as God has written it. And why does he have to keep writing it? Because at times we don't trust the Lord. We don't have faith in the Lord. So we have to repeat the lesson time and time and time and time again. Do you trust the Lord? But then it's an opportunity for imitation. Why do I say imitation? Because if Christ is the servant, now follow the thought, and we're all called to be servants, should we not look to his example? Does that only make sense? Should we not follow in his steps? So I would say this, that we should think about applying the key words to our Christian life. What key words? Well, the key words that are here. My servant. Pause. This is my application for you. When he says my servant, remember that's limited. The other people that are referred to as the servant of the Lord, but when God says my servant, limited. The question for you is this. Let's start right at the beginning, and it's this. Do you know Christ? You can't be a servant of the Lord. You, you can't have the title, my servant, if you don't know Christ. I mean, do you know Christ? That is, is there a moment in your life? Now, I know not everyone can point to that exact moment where you realize, I'm undone. I need Christ. I have intellectual assent. I know answers. I, I appreciate even certain things in the Bible. Maybe I appreciate a great deal of what's in the Bible, but do you know Christ? You cannot possibly be his servant if you don't know him. And then if you know him, the question is, will you be a servant like Christ and give your life for other people? Are you a servant in your home? Are you a servant at church? Are you a servant where you recreate? Will people know you as a servant of God? So it's no point of us to talk, well, this is wonderful, Isaiah 42, and look at this great servant that we have if we're not going to follow the servant, if we don't know this God. Because remember what it says about the servant. It says, in whom my soul delights. And why did his soul delight in God? Because he would be a faithful servant. So the question for you then is, does God delight in your soul? And I pray that it's the case. But every once in a while, I feel like we need to stop and, and ask that question of ourselves. And we as preachers need to ask it of, of those that are sitting under our teaching, do you know Christ? Are you truly a follower of Christ? And not a follower of religion or not a follower of a movement or not a follower of a popular preacher, but the living God, you know him. And people would say of you, they are a follower of Christ and they are a servant like the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Cry. That's an important word. Remember, he says he would not cry out. He's not going to force his message. He would speak of God, his father. Are you humble? Now, all of us are striving for it. So let's all answer. There are certain ways I am not humble. Can we all agree on that? No, you need to say amen louder than that. No, no, no. No, I have to go back to the another point or something. <laughs> we all need to grow in humility, do we not? Amen. Amen. But so be like the servant. Here he is. If there's anyone that could say, 
turn all attention and affection and everything to me, it would be Christ. Now, I'm not saying he didn't do it, but then what did he do? He directed it to his father. Will you direct all attention and affection to your father? Disheartened. He said he would not be disheartened. Do not be disheartened in the work of the ministry, right? Whatever you do, you do it unto the Lord. And you do it with all your might and with all your strength. And we should not be discouraged in the work of the Lord. Because why? It is his work and it is for his glory. So don't be disheartened. And then wait. Notice the nations wait for his instruction. It says his law, but it says the coastlands wait for his instruction. Do you have a heart like the nations that are waiting and hungering for the things of God? I mean, it's good to say the nation should wait and, and this wicked world should wait and this wicked world needs the law of God and this wicked world needs the instruction of God. But what about your own heart? Do you have an expectation? And this is why some translations say they wait expectantly or expectantly wait for his law. Is there an expectation? I, get to, I can read the word of God. Is there an expectation? I can study the word of God. The servant. Be like the servant. This is not just a prophecy lesson. This is a life lesson. These are all life lessons. And we're called to live our life like this servant, who it says, yes, he wasn't crushed in this sense. He wasn't disheartened. But I remind you again, he was crushed for your iniquities. Father, we thank you. For these words you give us, I pray that they would encourage our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.